Hello and welcome to this Life Changes podcast. You are now listening to one of our Sunday messages. If you'd like to know more about Life Changes, you can visit us on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram. Now lean in and enjoy. It's a brief series where we entitled How to Build a Nation. What does it mean to be the church and how do we respond in these sort of moments, these sort of times, uh, in this, this epoch of our history? How do we respond? And, uh, and if you didn't listen to it, please go and have a look at it because we had a look at the macro view of what God was doing in the history of the church and how we get to play our part in the story of the grand narrative of the gospel in this moment, in this day and age. We were born for such a time as this. But I, see, I told the story that I want to tell again just for two reasons, to show you that I do know some history, and that's why I made some use of my university days. But secondly, because I really feel I want this story to affect us and go deep in our hearts. If you weren't here last week, for, for just bringing you up to speed, in 1941 to 1944 was something called the Siege of Leningrad. In the, begin, the, the height of World War II, we find Hitler's Nazi regime um, invading what is today known as St. Petersburg, which was then Leningrad, and uh, we have this incredible battle, the siege, as the, the Third Reich come and occupy the land around the city, and they've been taking captives, they've been, they've been slaughtering people as they go, and it's these terrible days. If you go and you, you watch YouTube videos about this, uh, these 880 days, three years of being laid uh, siege by the German army, the terror that was in the people's hearts, the, the, the uncertainty about the days that lay ahead as, as the, actually the city was surrounded by a, a constant smoke from flames as the, as the Nazi regime just burnt everything to asunder. And we see this red army of the, the, the Russian, uh, Russian representatives trying to hold off the Nazi regime for three years, 880 days. Thousands of people starving to death. In, this, in the city because no one could get in, no one could get out because they laid them, they put this, these traps around the city and they, they blockaded the city. Thousands starving to death at the hands of war. And as the years rolled by, the, the cold Russian winters happened. People would die because of that. And then also because of the, the siege, food couldn't get in or couldn't get out. So famine started to hit the people. And Hitler just was playing a waiting game. As, as he was quoted saying, he was waiting for the rats to die off so he could take the strategic city. But while this battle was raging on above ground, as, as, as bullets were flying, as people were dying, as, as, as there was just all this chaos that was raining and fear in the air, and, and politicians making big statements, and the allies saying, we, this, we cannot do this, and people, big headlines were being declared about who was doing what and who was winning the war and what was happening. Below ground at that very late time, in a dark, frozen building called the Vavilov Institute, it was an institute of, that, or that dealt with agriculture and the seeds and, and, and crops and harvesting food for the next generation. And they were doing experiments on that. At the time the siege happened, these nine scientists locked the doors to their vault, to the Vavilov Institute, and went underground, knowing that at some stage these seeds and the crops they were looking after would become the very food that would sustain a nation on the back of that war. And for, for 880 days, these nine scientists intensively preparing seeds for long-term preservation of the city, protecting it from the marauding enemy and the carnage of the battle. As the siege went on and on, and on one by one, the scientists, boarded in with the seeds, died of starvation, refusing to eat from any of their collection of containers of rice, potatoes, peas, corn, and wheat. 
And this incredible scene, I don't know if you can visualize the scene, nine scientists, they would, they would have the buddy system so they wouldn't be tempted to eat of the crops that they were protecting that would sustain the nation when the doors would be flung open and Hitler would have been pushed back and they'll be able to feed the nation. But they had a long-term goal and they, they held themselves accountable. What One by one, one at a writing desk, one waiting desperately at the entrance trying to get a breath of fresh air. They died one by one refusing to eat of the seed, knowing that this was waging war for the future of their nation. What struck me is that at that moment, politicians thought they were fighting the greatest war. The enemy above ground thought their war was the most important one. But actually, the most important war that was being fought at that moment was underground by nine people. And what we were saying at that moment was that actually, for us as a church, the future of this nation, I want to declare it here right now again, is not held by politicians. It's not held by the economy. The future of this nation is not held by education or big business, but I promise you time and time again, history has told us the future of this nation is held by the church. You and I, not a brand name, not a church, the church, the living stones of Christ, the people he's brought together call this church. And the scripture in Ephesians 1 says this, it says the, the church is not peripheral to the, church, the world, the world is peripheral to the church. And I think we struggle to believe it sometimes because we see the headlines, we see the big battles raging on, we see the corruption, we see the stats, we, hear, we, we taste and smell the fear, and we think well, our little gatherings and our, what, our little claim to fame is not doing anything. I want to tell you if God can use nine scientists in the natural, underground, to sustain a nation years after 880 days, He can use the gathered church to do great and mighty things. So I don't think I'm overreaching or overstating these moments and the people in this room, why? Because I honestly, truly believe that I have got the privilege of leading people in this room who can lead the city and nation. So I want to welcome you this morning. If you are unfamiliar or if you just walked in, welcome to a sermon title, but more than that, a movement that I'm entitling The Underground Resistance. So why don't you turn to your neighbor and say, welcome to The Underground Resistance. I've trademarked that, so if you want to start a new church, you can't steal that name. I like it. That or a punk band. <laughs> One of the two. But I want to say that in, in, as we look at the narrative of human history and the narrative of Scripture, there's, the simplicity of the, the argument for this morning is that there are always two preachers at work. There are always two preachers at work. When we look at this, I want to say there's two narratives that are always at play. When you look at the story of Leningrad, the siege of Leningrad, above ground there's a whole lot of headlines of telling us what's, what the future of the nation, the future of the world that was at play. Underground there was another narrative saying, no, the future of this nation is not determined by that, it's determined by this. There's always two narratives at play. And actually it's not nothing new at the very first pages of the Bible. Genesis 1, we have the first preacher, God saying, I want to bless you, and I want to, I want to see you thrive, and I want you to be fruitful and multiply and take dominion and rule over the earth. He gives the minority, gives the humankind and the church, the first prototype, man and woman, the, 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 the origin to go and make babies and flood the earth with the good news of Jesus Christ and rule and have dominion of it. But in chapter 3, we see the second preacher who comes into the story, and there's always two preachers at work, God declaring hope and a future, and then we have the second preacher named Satan comes and says, did God really say? And what becomes the headline for the rest of the Bible becomes the headline of sin and darkness and rebellion over the human heart. And that becomes the headline, and the world live under that, that fear and that headline until a man named Jesus Christ comes and wages a wall almost underground to see many come to salvation. 
This is the story of the Bible in, in, in a nutshell. And actually, it's always, there's two narratives always going on. I grew up in Zimbabwe. And at the zenith of the, the political climate there with, with land reform on the go and with a whole lot of corruption and economies collapsing, if you opened the newspaper, the state-owned newspaper called The Herald, you would think we were living in a utopia. The Herald was, uh, had the incredible, the, these amazing spin doctors who could take any issue that happened and blame somebody else for it and say it's not that bad. You just have to talk to the man on the street and you find out that that is not the true story that was going on. But actually, I think we so often buy into the lie or the wrong headlines and we don't allow our hearts to feed on what the real preacher is saying. And I want to help us this morning because in our, in our journey, we have to ask ourselves, are we running towards what God is saying or to the fear of our hearts in these moments? So we're going to read a scripture together. Last week, I introduced you to a character called Nehemiah. We're going to flip a few pages to a, a, a small book in the Old Testament about a man named Jonah, a prophet who gets four chapters, doesn't get a lot of airtime. But I want to read four verses, three verses this morning, and then we'll pray and get stuck into the Word together. So this is what it says. It'll be on the screen behind me. It says this, Jonah chapter 1, the Word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Get up and go to the great city of Nineveh. Announce my judgment against it, because I've seen how wicked its people are. But Jonah got up and went in the opposite direction to get away from the Lord. He went down to the port of Joppa, where he found a ship leaving for Tarshish. He bought a ticket and went on board, hoping to escape from the Lord by sailing to Tarshish. Let's pray. Father, I thank you as we gather in this moment, a people of faith, your church, the underground resistance. I thank you, Father, that you are doing much more than what meets the eye. You're strengthening hearts. You're awakening hearts. You are putting courage in hearts, Father God. And you're calling us to a story that's greater and bigger than our, our everyday reality. Calling us to a story that's greater and bigger than what the headlines of the world are saying. You're calling us to be a people of faith. And a people whose eyes see the invisible. I thank you, Father, that you're doing this by your Holy Spirit and by your word this morning. Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So this morning I've got two points, not three, two. Things are going to be a little bit quicker and different this morning. But I want to say the first, there's two voices that we have to choose from. There's always two preachers preaching, two narratives going on, whether it's in the, in the political realm or whether it's in our spiritual lives. There's always two voices fighting for clarity and for the, the loudness in our hearts. And I want to say the first one that we have to wrestle to the ground and listen to which one we're going to listen to because the voice we listen to will determine the future we walk into. The first one is where we listen to faith or fear. You see, there are two narratives at play in our nation right now. Two narratives at play of one of the of fear and gloom and doom, of junk status, of corruption, of women who can are not safe in this country, there's no future for your children. There's one narrative. But I want to suggest today that I believe that that is not the only narrative that's at play. And that we as the church get to choose which narrative we are going to partner with. You see, as I read the scripture, let me tell you, things history has a way of repeating itself. It's always, there's always these, the way that the world works. What we find here in, this, in the, the Word of God this morning, Jonah, there's this city called Nineveh, which is a thriving metropolis. It's this, it's this massive city. It's a city that has lots of trade going on. It's got an impact in this day and age that would rival Cape Town. And God, when He sends, says, speaks about the city, He says two things about it. He says, Jonah, I want you to go to this great city of Nineveh because its wickedness and corruption and rebellion have come up to me. 
And, and two things are at play. So what I'm saying in this moment, I'm saying as this nation, I'm not calling the church to put our heads in the sand and deny the realities. God didn't. He saw the realities. And yet he said, I'm still calling you. Though the wickedness and rebellion, I see it. I'm calling you to the great city of Nineveh. We're not denying the realities. We're saying there's a superior reality at play. So I want to help us this morning. You see this amazing story of God and, and our man Joe, Jonah for full. He was called by God to run to Nineveh's potential by running towards its pain. God says, this great city of Nineveh, it's wickedness and rebellion, but I want you to go to it. I want you to go speak against this wickedness and rebellion. Now, I want to, this is for free. I really believe that often our greatest potential is locked up inside our greatest pain. Because that's where God can show His greatest grace. In the story, God said to Jonah, if you want a paraphrase version, very quickly, God said, go. Jonah said, no. And in a moment, when the two narratives were at play, Jonah, will you run to what I'm speaking, hope and future, not only of your life, but of a whole city? Or will you respond to fear and run the opposite direction? Jonah ran in a different way. But before we get there, the first line in that text we read says this. It starts off, the whole scripture starts off by saying, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Let me say this, and I'm going to help us work. Do we, are you okay to do a bit of work this morning? You're right, good, good. I know we, we really, I know the Springboks lost. I know that, I know that, I know that. But we're people with a different narrative. We'll beat New Zealand in the final. Now I'm prophesying. <laughs> I want to say the word of the Lord came to Jonah. Let me say this, that faith responds to the word of God. Let me help us with faith. It'll be on the screen behind me. Three things that you can take to the bank about faith. Faith only comes by the word of God. Let me say it again. Faith only comes by the word of God. If the word of God is not fueling your life then, and, you, and you're trying to just be buoyant, you do not have faith. You've just got optimism. And optimism doesn't sustain. Faith only comes by the word of God. Secondly, faith alone pleases God. Hebrews 11 tells us that without faith, it's impossible to please Him. You can do anything. You do no amount of good works. You can do the right amount of good things. You can sing the right songs. You can go through the right motions. But without faith, you cannot please Him. These are some absolutes in Scripture. And finally, we also see that faith activates the Word of God. The Word of God is powerful. It always achieves what it sets out to do. But Hebrews 4 tells us that the Word of God had no effect to the Israelites because they did not mix it with faith. So the Word of God is powerful. It's like this, this, this incredible force, the most powerful force in the universe by, the, the, by creation. Uh, the, all of creation was created by the Word of His mouth. It's sustained by the Word of His power, the Word of God. But that Word of God is, is, is lying dormant over your life. The promise of God and the truth of God is lying dormant unless you mix it and receive it with faith. That's why you can have, go into churches and have a guy who's being so faithful preaching to the Word of God, but the people are dead. My job is not to preach a most rebunctious sermon and get passionate. Come on! Da, da. If you don't respond with faith, I'm just going through the motions and looking foolish. If you respond with faith, I look foolish, but God still does His work then at least. But let me say this. Faith is us partnering with the voice of God. Faith is us partnering with the first preacher. So here's the thing. If faith is us partnering with the Word of God, let me tell you, fear is us partnering with another voice. Fear 
as us responding to another voice. And let me, without overstating it, there's two preachers. There's two preachers. So faith is partnering with the Word of God. Fear is partnering with something demonic. Can I say it more strongly? The Bible says this way, that, that fear is a spirit. It's not just a state of emotion. The Bible says that. I have not given you a spirit of fear. Okay? I think we have to do some work here because I think we, we sometimes think this thing. But also let me help us here that there's no neutral ground in this journey. I say there's two voices. You're either partnering in faith to the word of God or you're partnering in fear with something demonic. There's no neutral ground. Ah, I'm not doing that, but actually I'm not demonic. That's a little bit like third world, Gabe. We're in Cape Town, enlightened. There's no neutral ground. I was watching a documentary on South Korea and North Korea. Two nations at war, that there's this massive divide, and North, no one's gone into North Korea for years. They've got missiles pointed at each other. They're living in fear. South Korea is in one land, it seems. It's like a, 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 a mini USA with Minnie Mouse and Mickey Mouse ears everywhere, and everyone's smiling, happy. And then North Korea, and little clips we've seen of just, of Mao Tse-sung, uh, well, not, not Mao Tse-sung, what's the guy's name? Kim Jong-un, there we go. Donald Trump's BFF, ruling the world, and in this military position, and fear, and fear, and fear. No one goes in. You cannot go in. It's like to go in like this. It's this. It's this. You, it's just so. It's like lockdown. Lockdown. Nothing comes in. Nothing goes out. But in between the two, they've got something called the demilitarized zone. It's neutral ground. Neutral ground. And I watched a documentary where Americans went to the demilitarized zone, and it's the closest you can get to North Korea before they will not let you go in. And you can see it through. The, if you look over the trees, that's North Korea. Wow. Like those are North Korean trees. Wow. But the difference is, they say demilitarized zone. They say it's neutral. They say it's neither South Korea nor North Korea. But to be honest, they say categorically, they all know it's owned by North Korea. Why? Because when you walk in there, they're told, look down, turn off your phones. When they say, when you walk in there, you don't look in people's eyes. There's a whole state of fear in the demilitarized zone because they're on the edge of North Korea. And I think we live in this idea, this thing that there's this neutral zone that we can live in. That, you know, yeah, sure, I'm not, you know, I'm not, I'm not burning for Jesus. I'm not responding in faith at this moment. But, you know, I'm not falling apart either. I say again, there's no neutral zone. There's no neutral zone in this journey. You're either partnering in faith or in fear. You see Moses against one of the greatest empires and forces in the history of humanity. That would have made North Korea look like uh, junior school. The Egyptian pharaoh in all his might in Egypt. And Moses comes, when Moses has been banished, every, everything from, from Egyptian side, he is, a, he is a wanted man, he's been gone into the desert for 40 years, God's voice meets him that moment, says, Moses, you, and for an, again, paraphrased version, Mo, go. And Moses has this moment where actually, in this moment, I'm in the minority, I'm on the run, I should not be able to do this, but in this moment, you're going to partner with the word of God, or the voice of Pharaoh. And the simplicity of Moses' story in every juncture doesn't mean there's no wrestle. doesn't mean it's just like, no, it's suck it up and let's do it. No, it's, there's wrestle, there's doubt, there's, there's, there's walking with God. But in this moment, when Pharaoh's might comes, he, every, at every step, Moses says, I'm partnering with the Word of God. I'm partnering with the Word of God. You, you see, in this, in, this, in this country we are, and I, I want to say this in this moment, and I'll say it very cautiously, because I grew up in Zimbabwe, and I've seen this journey uh, where, where the chaos comes in a nation, and, and fear comes in, you start to plot, what's our next land, what's the, what's the go to move? Uh, we as a church will never say, we'll sit you down and say, you must stay or you must go. We'll never say that. But what I will ask you is, what has God said? 
Why? Because in Scripture, I see, by faith, Abraham left the land he lived to go where God was sending him. Abraham, by faith, left. But his son, it says in Genesis 25, says, Isaac, by faith, stayed in the land. Both were by faith. And I want to say, too many people, if you leave in fear, you are doing a disservice to your children, not providing them a future. But same thing, vice versa. If you stay in fear, because actually, what opportunities I do have are just staying here, then you're also doing your future a disservice. We as a church get a chance to respond in faith or in fear. I say this, let's, let's get a theology of place. You're not here by accident. We have to understand, Acts 17 says he knows the exact times and places we should live. He knows the exact times and places we should live. He knows that. And if he speaks and leads you onwards, we'll be cheering you on and say, go for it and be a blessing in that nation. But I want to say it again, the grass is not green on the other side. The grass is always, is, that God will lead you with it to life wherever you are. God's people have always thrived when they're in the minority. God's people have always thrived when they're under persecution. So let me say this again. Fear will take you somewhere you don't want to go. You see, Jonah says no, so he runs down to a port called Joppa. And there so happened to be a boat going the other direction to Tarshish. Tarshish, if you want to know, Nineveh is in modern-day Iran. Tarshish is in modern-day Spain. It's the furthest place than they could have known. He's in Joppa, and there so happens to go, be a boat. He's a prophet, so I bet he's going, you know what, if there's a boat going to Tarshish, I'll know it's the Lord's will. <laughs> if there's a boat, wow, what amazing, thank you, Lord. <laughs> Let me tell you, there'll always be an escape ship going the opposite direction. In every reality, not only in the nation, but in your marriage, in your finances, in your business, there'll always be something going the other way. And that's why we are not, let me help you here, we're not an open, shut door type people. I've said this before. I'm praying for God to open a door. There's two preachers. God can open a door and Satan can open a door. We serve a God who speaks. Too many people are saying, God, if you open a door in another, if the papers somehow come through, Actually, no, that's not, that's not what we do. We pray and we ask God to speak. That's why we're community together, because God leads us. There'll always be a ship going another way. If, you know, God, if, if this is, if, you know, the marriage is really tough right now, if you give me a way out, then I'll just step up. No, 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 we serve a God who speaks. If you just give me a, no, God, we serve a God who speaks. Let's be a people who do that, because as an underground resistance, we do not respond to external stimulus. Let me put that in us. Remind us. We are people who do not respond to external stimulus. We resp respond rather to an internal compass. We've given the Spirit of God and says He leads us in paths of righteousness. He walks us through the valley of the shadow of death. This is our God. He is personal. He walks with us. He doesn't leave us a distance and say, trust for an open door. No, He walks with us. And we, that's who we are, the underground resistance. We respond like the world freak out at the headlines. We go, no, but we've got an internal compass because he's spoken. And his headline is true. His word is final. So I want to ask you, what is making you do what you do? What is making you do what you do and how you respond? Is it your circumstance or external situation? My prayer this whole week in my own heart and for us as a people, that this time when everyone else is shrinking back, there will be a people who are rising up and, and having faith to speak out. Faith to step out and faith to get out.
Speak out to political power. Speak out to when there's injustice around us. Speak out when things are not as they should be. Speak out when there's racial inequality in your circle. Speak out when there's gender opposition, when there's things people are saying, derogatory things about nation. Speak out. They wouldn't shrink back. That faith would rise up. There would be people who step out. There's opportunities we'll step out and also that we'll get out. That sometimes there's relationships that are not going well for us, but we have faith to actually say, actually, I don't need that. I'm going to get out. But also in the same breath, we'll have faith to stand in. Dig in and press in. So I want to ask you this morning as a people, I've been saying this to my own heart, do I hear, as the the Israelites did, do I hear the chariots behind me or do I see the Red Sea in front of me? This is not the first time the people of God have seen challenge in front of them. It's not the first time the people of God have felt hemmed in at every direction. Do you hear the chariots or do you see the Red Sea opening up? Do you hear Goliath taunting, taunting you or do you hear the sound of him about to fall? Do you feel the fire getting hotter, or do you see the fourth man joining you in the fire? You see, I want to say this. Fear can only be silenced by faith. Fear can only be silenced by faith, and too many of us have allowed fear to keep us locked, locked away in a corner for too long. So I want to say, as a people of underground resistance, can we be a people who refuse to do anything except what the Word of God has said to us? Can we be that people? We refuse to do anything. I only do what the Father shows me. I only do what I see my Father doing. I only do what the Lord has spoken to my heart. I tell you, faith is dangerous. Faith is risky. Faith is crazy. But faith leads to life. Secondly, faith or fear. Secondly, I want to ask us, the voices, are you a follower or fan? I want to tell you this morning about the fastest growing church in the world. It's a church that does not have a name, it does not own a building, it has no formalized leadership structure, and is run by women. In a nation called Iran, stats have shown us the fastest growing churches in the world are in Iran. Take that China underground church. I say that, not all jokes aside, in Iran, they say that Islam is crumbling. The stats say that ISIS and, and, and the, 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 that Arab world is just, is just getting stronger and stronger. I want to tell you, Islam is crumbling. The underground resistance is rising, not in some metaphorical sense, but in reality. And women in Iran are coming to faith left, right, and center. And they're leading their husbands to the Lord, and the church is growing. And they said the incredible thing is that they've, the church is rising. It says persecution is getting harder and harder and harder upon them. And they said, but they're great. They said they rejoice at the persecution because it says that the side of persecution, it says cheap converts leave quickly. Disciples dig in. So it says that furnace is revealing who's a follower and who's just a fan. You see, the Western church, we're so easily satisfied with being fans of Jesus. Jesus isn't looking for fans. He's not looking for an extra like on his Instagram page. He's not looking for cheap followers. He's a cheap, just somebody who's going to, yeah, you know, he's looking for followers, disciples. You, you see, when I read scripture, I always, I, I've said this again and again, but I keep getting perplexed as I read Jesus because the world says, no, we just, no, your Christian stuff, you must, we don't like your whole Christianese stuff and Christian things, just, we, but we like your Jesus. Give us Jesus. I'm like, you really like our Jesus? He said some really inflammatory things. I think they've painted him as they've feathered his hair. They've made him look neat and tidy. Jesus said things. He needed a PR guy. He wasn't good at his own PR if he was trying to build a crowd or a cheap following. 
Because guy came to him and said, listen, Jesus, I want to follow you. I'll go anywhere you go. And Jesus says, okay, sell your house. And he says, because foxes of holes, birds of nests, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. If you're looking for a crowd, don't say that. Basically, come follow me. You'll be homeless. Are you in? Oh. Another guy said, I want to come follow you, Jesus, but first let me go bury my mother. My, my parents have just died. Jesus said, let the dead bury the dead. Wow, compassionate Jesus. Jesus said another time to a guy who's known as a rich young ruler. Jesus, this was a celebrity of the day. This is sort of guy going, actually, if, you know when you pray, hey, if we just got that celebrity saved, you know? Oh, praise the Lord, Kanye's doing church services now. Now Christianity will explode. Bieber's quotes to posting things about Jesus. Yes! This rich young ruler, the celebrity of the day, swaggers in and says, Jesus, I want to be on your team. Don't I'll give you a bump on social media. Jesus says, give everything away to the poor and come follow me. And see, the guy went away sad. Me, I'm running after celebrity. Can we have coffee? Can we, let's chat, let's chat. You know, can we know if we just get you, if you can just like some of our pages, sheesh, man, it'll go a long way for us. Jesus isn't to that. Another time he said to the guys that came, he said, we want to follow you. And he said this, and he gets up and does a teaching. He has this massive crowd. At that time, I'm like, Jesus, do, do your water into wine trick. Do the, the miracle of walking on, walking on water. Do, you know, those things are great crowd pleasers. Jesus doesn't do any of those. He teaches to a massive crowd. He says, unless you eat of my flesh or drink of my blood, you can have no part of me. It says everyone was so freaked out. They're like, is, is twilight a thing again? It's like, what? And they're backing away. And it says even the disciples were confused. And he says, when he looks around, everyone left. The whole crowd left. He says, are you guys going to leave me as well? And they said, no, we don't understand it, but where else can we go? You alone have the words of, of eternal life. You see, this is an amazing thing. It's, it's Jesus. It sounds hard, but it's not. Jesus is just not after cheap allegiance. He's not after a Western church. You're going to go, we're for you, Jesus, when it's good, but actually we're on our own journey. Can you come and be a, you can be a part of our story, but not this story? I prayed it. God, if only we had crowds big crowds, what a difference we would make. If only we had celebrities. Jesus doesn't need the crowds or the famous. He's looking for followers. Because the crowds that cheered Jesus' name were the same people who crucified him a week later. And Jesus is always, the church has always thrived when it's in the minority and being persecuted. Let me help us. A fan, if you want to know what a follower is, there'll be a thing behind me now. A fan is a spectator. A follower is a participator. Read the narrative of Jonah. Homework for this week, four chapters, a great narrative. We find Jonah's story as he's running. He's on the ship all the way back to Tarshish, running away from God. It says, Jonah, a huge storm happened. Everyone's in chaos. Jonah, God's man, was asleep down in the bottom of the boat. Chapter two, we find Jonah down in the sea in the bottom of the belly of a whale. Then Jonah gets back and he gets a second chance. He goes to Nineveh, reluctantly dragging his feet, saying, oh, I suppose I'll go do it. He speaks against the city of Nineveh. But then sitting on a hill outside the city, he makes himself a shelter to sit under as he waits to see what will happen to the city. You see, Jonah was happy to speak out against the city, but he didn't want to participate in it. I'll just say, I'll do the bare minimum. I'll just, I want to watch what you will do, God, but I'm not going to get involved. We all love the scripture. Anyone know Jeremiah 29, 11? Surely you've seen it in a coffee cup. You've, uh, somebody once sent it to you and you saw it in the back of a taxi, encouraged as you drove to work. Jeremiah 29, 11, before we get to verse 4, 29, 11 says this, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Wonderful. But let's not take it out of its context. 
Let's skip back five, six verses. Jeremiah 29, verse 4 to 7. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those that I carried into exile. God talking from Jerusalem to Babylon. Just a quick side note. Babylon is modern-day Iraq. The people in Jerusalem were taken as captivities for 70 years into Babylon, away from their homeland, away from their big family reunions, away from all that was nice and safe. And God's here saying, I sent you there to Babylon. Do with that what you will. No, no, but I thought the wicked king. No, God is over it all. He knows the exact times and places you should live. He says, this is why I say to you in Babylon, a wicked land, a place where Daniel's going to be thrown in the lion's end, where Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego will be thrown in the fire. Babylon, that, is, that has statues of foreign gods. Babylon, a place that is not godly in the slightest. Babylon, this is what God says they must do in Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives to your sons and give your daughters in marriage. I'm not ready for that one, Lord. Please, Lord. So that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too shall prosper. Babylon. Let me tell you, I think there's three things we have to understand. The church will be on the screen behind me. The church, often pick one of these three responses. Number one, we, we respond in a way that looks like a bomb shelter. What is a bomb shelter? It's us putting our heads in the sand, waiting for the rapture, working out fiercely. This is where those guys on YouTube start telling you, the world, I'll tell you the date the world's going to end. Because they're obsessed with all those things. They're obsessed with those, and they, they wait for the rapture. They sing Kumbaya loudly and loudly. Just and say, sing it, try and sing as loud as we can so we don't hear the sinners out there. And every now and again, we'll hurl an angry Facebook status on God's behalf. God's going to judge you. <sighs> bomb shelter. Secondly, sometimes the church on the alternative reality responds as a mirror, saying to the world, we're just the same as you, man. We're not different. Relax. We're not judgmental. We're cool. We're cool, guys. We're cool just like you. We watch the same shows. We laugh at the same things. We spend our money the same way. And basically, no, basically, if you push around, we all love, man, peace and love. We believe the same thing as you. We're just the same. So one is a bombshell that's just hidden cell. The other one's a mirror where we try and reflect the culture so we look the same as them, but we never really do any difference in their lives. But I want to suggest the biblical alternative is called, I says, the church is called to be a city on a hill. Distinctive and yet involved. A city on a hill, distinctive and yet involved. How does this reality work out for us? We've got a thing called Recycle Swap Shop here at Life Changes. And it's an initiative that works into the, some of the rural settlements in our area. That's an incredible initiative of not a handout, but a hand up. Where people weekly go in and we've had these, these shops stocked with food and clothing and items for, for communities. And, and people in the community to, to purchase those items in the shop have to bring recycling. And they bring all the recycling from the area. They weigh the recycling. That recycling gets a, the weight of it gets a, is a, they get the equivalent in cash, so they can or tokens so they can go into the shop and purchase food for their families and clothes for their families. And then that recycling gets taken to a depot where we get money for the recycling, so we can stock the shop. I think it's a genius thing. That thing has been going for nearly a decade, and it was the initiative here at Life Change was started by a lady called Maria, who was from England, Surrey, England. She has an English accent, and she, when she moved to Africa, she said, I'll move to Africa for her husband, but I will only live in a golf estate. And then she starts out rolling, 
This, when God gets a grip of her heart and she says, actually, I can live as a bomb shelter or we can try and live as a mirror and try and reach people and show them that you're just like them or I can be a city on a hill myself as the church. I can be distinctive and yet involved. She started at well, one time was going to five areas, Guguletu, Kailicha, uh, Danun, uh, Philippi, and one other. And she was going to all these, these, these areas where there was gang violence and there was threats against her life with her team and God kept on being showing his favor. The amazing thing is she's, she's, she's moved away and she, the team has been taken over 10 years later in this growth and when the person who put their hand up, we're looking, who, who God, who's the person who's going to be the person to spearhead this going forward? Is a very short Afrikaans girl called Suzanne. <laughs> it's like English lady and then an Afrikaans, it's like not the right people in the, in the, the way it should be, but God's in it, but I've got a plan. And the amazing thing is that in the last two weeks, when this woman who's actually not been involved steps in, we think maybe this thing will be step-taking a step backwards. At, at her stepping in, the, right word, the word has reached the right ear. And the city of Cape Town have said, can we pay for you guys to outroll this into multiple more communities? This thing is being funded by the city of Cape Town now. Why? Because the church says actually will be a city on a hill distinctive but involved. That's how we seek the peace and prosperity of our city. So I want to ask us again, follow a fan, another one for follow a fan is a fan is a survivor, a follower is a sacrificer. To be honest, as an English person, the word sacrificer is not real. Just we had a red line under it every time I wrote it, just, to, just in case some of you are freaking out. But you get what I'm going with, a survivor or a sacrificer. Because Jonah's story ends with him wallowing, chapter 4 ends with him wallowing in self-pity, complaining about why his shelter has been eaten by a worm, and God reprimanding him of his small heart. A city is experiencing revival as they respond. Nineveh hears the word of God, they respond and say, we're going to repent and we're going to change. And Noah's frustrated that actually God's going to show mercy to this wicked city. So he's sitting on a hill sulking. And he builds a shelter just so he can sit away because the sun is too hot. And as he sits under the shelter, God brings a worm that eats his shelter. And he throws another tantrum saying, God, this is so unfair that you're using a worm to eat my shelter. God has basically come and says, Jonah, revival is breaking out in the city. And you're sitting, sulking as a survival on the side and not sacrificing for the future of these people. So often that's the, the church. Chaos is reigning in the valley or revival is about to break out. The life of God is moving, but we're sitting on the sidelines saying, no, no, no. We don't want to get involved. You see, in this amazing thing, Jonah, four chapters in the Old Testament, but actually there's one other verse where his name is mentioned. 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 25. A brief mention about Jonah, son of Amittai, the same Jonah. And this was 20 years earlier when Jonah, son of Amittai, is recorded in his one line. It says that Jonah, son of Amittai, as a prophet, spoke into being the, the response of God. It says because of him speaking, the boundary lines of Israel were extended. So Jonah is a hero in 2 Kings 14, 25. He's this hero that speaks and Israel extends its, its, its land. We see him a mere 20 years later and his story ends in, in defeat and in, in, in him sulking and him, in him wallowing in his own small story. 2 Kings 14, he spoke into being, but years later he wouldn't go with his life. You see, in 1942, back to that story, 1941 to 1944, 90, that, the early 40s, the people, those nine scientists in that bunker there, as they, as they looked after and stewarded and sacrificed their lives for the future of that nation, they heard the headlines, they heard the gunshots, they heard the fear, they, heard, they felt the cold winter breeze, they heard the, the headlines over the nation. 
But in that moment, they chose a different narrative. I want to tell you this morning that the headline over this nation is junk status, it's corruption, it's unsafe for women, racial discord. But I want to say as the underground resistance, we get to choose to be a part of a different narrative. How do I have such confidence? Because a man named Jesus Christ, not in a political savior, not in a political party, not in foreign aid, not in big business, not in clever strategy, but a man named Jesus Christ. And he came and he died on the cross, the death that we deserved. And he laid his life down for us when we were enemies of his, when our headline was dead in sin. Jesus wrote a different narrative. Let me tell you, on Friday, when Jesus died on the cross, on Golgotha, he put his arms outstretched and he yelled out, Tetelestai, meaning paid in full or colloquially, it is finished. And his body was taken down off the cross and he gave up his last breath and he was put into the ground, sown as a seed into the ground in death. I can imagine the enemy in that day saying, Jesus is right. He's pronounced, it is finished. It is finished indeed. The second preacher has won. Since Genesis 1 to Genesis 3, the first preachers preached, and the, but the second preacher said, did God really say? And humanity is given into the second preacher and given into the second preacher. So much so when the first preacher came, they did not recognize him. They crucified him. We've won. The headline declared, he is dead. But Sunday, Sunday came. And in that moment, resurrection declares that the first preacher will always have the final say. If he spoke it, he'll see it through. I want to tell you today, what is the headlines about your life, sir, man? The headlines that have defined your existence, that you've allowed to become your life. The headlines about your marriage, the headlines about your kids, about your health, about your addiction, about your pain, about your sin. What are the headlines of your life? I want to tell you, Jesus Christ can take any headline and rewrite his narrative. Why? Because actually the blood of Jesus speaks a better word. The blood of Jesus speaks a better word, and he's rewriting our history, and he's covering us with destiny. This is the blood of the Lamb. Today, as we close our eyes in this moment, I, I'm praying for faith to rise in our hearts, faith that will aggressively batter against our fear. I'm praying that followers and decisions to say, I'm not going to be on the outskirts. I don't want to just be a fan. I, I, I don't want to just be a spectator. I don't want to just be a survivor. I want to be a participator. I want to be somebody who gets involved. I want to be someone who's involved in this journey and, and is sacrificing for what lies ahead, not just surviving for today. But even as I was preparing, I could not get past this thing of in Jonah 1, son of the, the word of God came to Jonah, son of Amittai, and says, go to the great city, for its wickedness and rebellion has come up to me. And when God said go, Jonah said no and went in the opposite direction. I think some of us here have been running, not just in Cape Town marathons. We've been running from God. Maybe outwardly people wouldn't say so. Maybe it looks like every the headlines of your life. No, I've got it all together. But you know inside the, the details of your life are chaos. Fear, anxiety, sin, and you cannot get out of it. I want to tell you, when Jonah ran from, Nine from, from Nineveh to Tarsus, there was a colloquial saying in the day, they were so far removed that Tarsus was the furthest place on the map from Nineveh. Tarsus going west, Nineveh going east, they said that to run that way was to run as far as the east is from the west. 
And when I read that, Jonah running the furthest place away he could from God, I was reminded of the psalm that says, Jesus removes our sins as far as the east is from the west. Sir and ma'am, you can run far. The grace of Jesus runs further still. The nation can go far. The grace of Jesus runs further still. Your health can go bad. His grace can go further still. Your marriage is on the rocks. His grace goes further still. But today, we have to say, Jesus, we allow you to rewrite the narrative of our headlines. So today, with every eye closed, I want to ask you today, if you've been running from God, and you're saying, I've been at best a fan, but not a follower. I've been allowing fear to interrupt my story and to lead my narrative and lead my, uh, my story down paths I don't want to go. But today, I'm putting a stake in the ground. I'm being part of an underground resistance that say, I live in response to Jesus alone and to his word. If you will say, I've been running, but today, I want his grace to overtake me and overwhelm me and rewrite my narrative. I'd love you to lift your hand as high as you can. Father, I thank you for these hands, an underground resistance, a people who say, actually, what determines my future is not what's going on around me, it's what's going on inside of me. And I pray right now, God, your grace washes us in the deepest place. You don't just wash the outside and leave us rotten inside. You say you give us a new heart and you give us new desires, and you give us new passions. I thank you, Father, for the underground resistance to rise up. As hands were lifted up in that moment, I thank you, Father God, from heaven, those hands are saying, I'm listening to the first preacher. I'm partnering with faith, not fear. I'm partnering with following you, Jesus. I thank you, Father God, seal your word by your promised Holy Spirit. And would we be a people whose headlines would start to be rewritten for our own lives and for the sake of our nation, Jesus. Revive your church.